Every song that we sing ought to, according to 1 Corinthians 14, be those that come with understanding and with spirit or attitude. And certainly, the song that you and I have just shared with each other about our Jesus, the Lamb of God, is one that we sing with truthfulness in our minds and with a spirit and an attitude of appreciation for who that Lamb was, but not just who He was, but what He still is to us today, because He makes all the difference. And I'm glad that you're here tonight to sing songs, to praise our God, to encourage each other, and to do what we can to study from God's Word as we prayed just a few moments ago. I invite you to take your Bibles to the first book of the Old Testament, and we're going to look at chapter 6 and look at some verses that maybe we kind of skip over in just a moment. Glad to have, as our brother uh, David pointed out a few moments ago, those visiting with us from the county, from the community, those who are traveling from out of state. We appreciate you so very much. I'd like to talk tonight about a subject that in one aspect of our thinking is very non-controversial, non-committal, not a big issue, and it will not ruffle our feathers. While at the same time, to some who may be here, and particularly to some of our friends in other religious groups, will certainly be controversial and will certainly cause some concern. And that is using the word pattern, using the idea of guidelines, using the idea of a blueprint. I am not an expert on sewing, but I do know what a pattern is. And I'm told that if you deviate from the pattern of the shirt or the pair of pants or whatever it is that you are trying to construct as a man or a woman creating a garment, that your garment will not come out the way that it was designed because you deviated from the pattern. I understand from an architect's point of view, though I'm not an architect either, that if you draw up a blueprint and you change some things based on what uh, you think is best versus what the person who's designing the home suggests, you're going to have a very unhappy client by making those closets too small uh, or by making the dining room too short or whatever the case may be. We understand those basic, simple components of what a pattern or a blueprint is. And certainly when it comes to God's design for the way that we live, for the church that we are a part of, we need to appreciate blueprints and patterns as well. And so this is one of a couple of sermons that, Lord willing, I plan to present over the course of 2024 as we continue developing one of the themes that I started talking about a little bit in the fall of 2023. And now as we progress into 2024, this idea of biblical authority, making sure that we do things the way that God wants them to be done. And we're not going to focus in on 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, though I appreciate our brother reading from that particular passage, which makes reference to following that old path or that pattern that God has provided. I want to make just four kind of basic observations, each with their separate applications in our study together this evening. And that is to argue that all back to Genesis, as well as a half a dozen other Old Testament passages that are scattered around, that patterns have always been important to our God. 
He has always had, that is, a set of things that you must do, you must not do, or things that you have the right to do or the right not to do. And that plays a role in the way that we govern our lives as well. And that certainly is the case in the Old Testament. And I've asked you to open your Bibles to the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis. I want to look at just four quick examples of men who were commanded to follow God's blueprint. And this proves the point beyond any shadow of a doubt, if there was any doubt at this point, that God says there are certain ways of doing things. And Genesis 6 is one of those instances where Noah is told to build this great ark, this great vessel on which he and his wife and six other souls would be saved. And we are familiar with the story of Noah and the ark. Even people who aren't Christians are familiar with the account of Noah and the ark. But I want to read just three verses of what could be an overlooked section because it's dealing with details that some would say just don't matter. Well, let's read these three verses, and then I want to ask a very simple question, which has an obvious answer to it. Beginning in verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and outside with pitch. This is verse 14 of Genesis chapter 6. And then picking up in verse 15, this is how you'll make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, it's width 50 cubits, it's height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And we all look at that and we say, well, God's giving instructions for Noah to build the ark. So here's the the easy, slow-pitch softball question of the night. If Noah had deviated from the plans that God put forth as to how to construct the ark, maybe by making four decks because four is better than three, or maybe making it just a little bit longer or a little bit shorter, whatever the case may be, what would have happened to Noah? I see a thumbs down. That is the idea of him sinking. (laughs) And you and I would not be here. And things would have changed dramatically for the history of the world. By grace, Noah was saved back in verse 8. In addition to his obedience to God and doing everything that was in that blueprint. It's as if God says, here are my plans for building this great vessel. Build it exactly how I want you to build it. And Noah did so. And the ship was not sunk. The ark sailed And everyone on it was saved. The same is true when you think about passages like Exodus chapter 25, which we will not take the time to read. But we recently studied the book of Exodus about two and a half years ago. And when you get to Moses and the instruments of the tabernacle worship, they are very specific. They are written there as to what you use, what it's made out of, what its purposes are. And if you deviate from the design or the direction, people end up dying. And we see in occasions throughout the Old Testament where individuals did perish, at least in a temporary way, with leprosy or some other form of earthly disease, because they did not follow God's pattern with temple or tabernacle worship. 
perhaps one of the most familiar texts to those of us as members of the Lord's, uh, Lord's churches in 2 Samuel chapter 6. But I want to actually go back and read an obscure, and I put that in air quotes, passage in the book of Numbers chapter 4. Because I thought this was an interesting statement that is made in Numbers chapter 4. And in this particular book that we studied about two years ago, the statement is made when Aaron and his sons, verse 15, chapter 4, have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them, but they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. These are the things in the tabernacle of the meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. And so even though the word pattern or blueprint is not used in Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, that's exactly what is being taught by God. There is a specific way to deal with things related to the tabernacle, with things related to the ark. And of course, we use 2 Samuel chapter 6 as a teaching point because this is where Uzzah, after the ark was set on a new cart steadied the ark by putting forth his hand. And God said, Uzzah, bless your heart, don't do that. That's not what he says in 2 Samuel chapter 6. He says, you're dead because you touched the ark and you violated the principles of Exodus 25 and Numbers chapter 4 and some other passages in the previous books. When God says, do something my way, even if it doesn't make sense to us, we've got to do it his way. And a fourth example is King Josiah. Go over very quickly here. I wasn't going to read 2 Kings chapter 23, but I actually want to just read the text because of a statement that is made that you may want to underline or at least kind of put into your brain because I think it applies to us today. It says in chapter 23 of 2 Kings Verse 21, the king commanded all the people, and he says, keep the Passover to the Lord your God, and then notice, as it is written in this book of the covenant. This was the occasion where the book had been found, and they said, what kind of book is this? And they said, well, that's not just a book, that is the book. And everyone was reverent in their worship of God. And Josiah, this great king, albeit relatively young, comes in and restores this true reverent worship of God. Patterns have always been important to God. And these are just four of dozens of examples that we could recognize in the Old Testament. In the New Testament... As we read about the birth of Christianity, we also read about the respect of God's patterns. For example, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, a passage that we'll study in further detail coming up, Lord willing, in May, as we engage in a study of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and in verse 15, he says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and notice what it says, hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by our letters or by the epistle, some versions would say. There are different things that we call traditions. Uh, gathering together twice on the Lord's Day to worship is a tradition. 
uh, meeting in pews as opposed to chairs is a tradition. And those are traditions that we as men, sometimes out of a sense of wisdom, and I think certainly so when it comes to meeting multiple times, if we have that opportunity to avail ourselves up, those are wise traditions. But there are other traditions that we follow today. Gospel preaching is a tradition. The Lord's Supper is a tradition. And we might cringe at that because, well, that's not a tradition. It is an apostolic, biblically-based, spiritually-minded tradition that we follow. In 2 John chapter, verse 9 of, of that very short little book, as we have studied before, there John writes in verse 9 of the text, he says, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine... You might even put it out to the corner of the page there, the idea of the pattern. The doctrine or the pattern of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine or the pattern of Christ has both the Father and the Son. God's commands have been to be taken seriously throughout time, are to be taken seriously, and we must continue to take them seriously going forward. I say all that because we live in a religious world with which you are likely very familiar that says anything goes. I was watching a pastor, put in air quotes, uh, just a couple of days ago on TV. Uh, I'm not even sure what group he is affiliated with, if any particular group. And he was suggesting that it really doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you practice. It doesn't matter whether you believe in Jesus or not. And all these wild ideas, at least wild to us as Christians, that are widely accepted and are very appetizing to a world that wants easy ways of doing things. But as Brother David pointed out this morning, that is akin to playing with fire. And we cannot be doing that. So patterns have always been important. Let me go and shift into the second observation, which goes to the heart of the introduction, and that is we need to appreciate that patterns are authoritative. Again, when the architect says, here's what I want you to do, uh, the builders have to do it that way or else someone's going to be upset. We even prayed this evening that our loved ones who are undergoing surgeries this week, that the doctors will do it as they have been skillfully trained. What were they trained by? Well, partly by a textbook, but also by practicing, oftentimes hundreds or thousands of times. No one wants to go into the, for a surgery and say, hey, doctor, how many times is this? Well, you're my first time. Looking forward to it. Now let's get to work. You want that doctor to say, oh, I've done this thousands of times and it's no big deal. You're going to be fine. I am very capable. Incidentally, where do the doctors ever get their first chance? Who's, the, who's that person that gives them that first chance to cut on you or whatever the case may be? But you want he or she to be following a pattern of skillful training that he or she has received over a lot of schooling and a lot of experience. Knowing that there is a pattern means knowing that there are rules regarding authority for a physician, for a religious group, 
for an individual who is practicing a particular uh, event or sport. And so we have talked about, just a few weeks ago, the idea of the framework of authority, the idea of CENI. And I'm going to add in the silence of the scripture notion that we'll talk about. This may be something that you have heard about before. It may be something that for those of you that are new to the church, those of you that are new to Christianity, or those of you that are younger may say, I'm not sure what he's talking about. And this is a battle that has been fought for many years by many of our brethren, some of whom are here tonight, some of whom have gone on to their reward. Where, uh, particularly 50 to 75 years ago, there were real battles that were waged in churches just like this over issues of whether or not do, do we have the authority to, to spend the money on this particular thing? Do we have the authority to teach this particular thing? Do we have the authority to do these particular aspects? And so when you do the idea of C-E-N-I, it starts with the idea of a command. And it's a very simple concept. If we are commanded to do something, we do it. And so we know that there are certain things that we are told to do or conversely told not to do, and therefore we do it or don't do it. And we understand that principle. We understand that principle when it comes to legal ramifications in a world where we have selected political authorities to write laws that sometimes we don't necessarily agree with. Maybe we should be able to go a little bit faster. Maybe I should be able to turn right on red here, whatever the case may be. But the local authorities say, no, you can't do that. And as much as we might disagree, we say, I'll do it. I'll obey by it. And I understand if I disobey the command, there is a consequence to be born, financial or otherwise. And so there's a command, we do it or don't do it. If there's an example of people who have been inspired in the Bible or people who have been taught by those who are apostles or inspired in the Bible, doing something that God is pleased with, we do it as well. And I point that out because oftentimes you are going to interact with people in the world who say, well, when does the Bible say do this or don't do that when it comes to subjects like biblical authority? We've got to do our very best to say, well, there are different ways of establishing biblical authority. And it's not just the idea of God says do this or don't do that. But if the apostles did it and got the okay or the thumbs up from God then we have authority to do so as well. Certainly, the idea of example is important, but also is the idea of necessary inference, which is where the NI comes from. Some like the phrase, an inescapable conclusion, and I I can buy into that. Putting one and one together, we get two. You get all kinds of different pieces in the Bible, which you have to read in concert with everything. One of the basic rules of biblical interpretation is reading everything and not just reading one thing and saying, I've got the answer, but reading the entirety of it. And that's why, and it's sometimes confusing or even a little bit disconcerting to people who are new to Bible study. Why do do you keep telling me to turn to Mark? Now you're asking me to turn to Acts. Now you want me to go to Romans. And you say, well, why didn't God just list it out in a list? I don't know that I know the perfect answer to that. I do believe that part of the reason 
is because God wants us to search and to use the word that is used in the New Testament to grope. The idea is, I want to learn more about you. And that's going to require effort. In fact, Paul would say to the church at Philippi, there is work associated with spiritually figuring out what is necessary to do. And then the SS, that is the silence of the scripture. If there is zero authority for an action, we ought not be doing it. This is not an exhaustive sermon just on C&I and the silence of the scripture. But I do want to just very briefly use as a case study a passage that you may have come across before. And that's a very simple passage that you're going to say, yeah, I've heard that passage before. And it comes near where our brother David spoke this morning in the book of John, the gospel of John. David leaned heavily on the gospel of John this morning. And we're going to spend just two or three minutes looking at John chapter 13. And I want to start back in verse 31 and just read that very brief four or five verse paragraph. It says, when he had gone out, verse 31 of John, the 13th chapter, Jesus says, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also be glorified, will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. And then watch verses 33 through 35, little children. I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It seems to me that this, particularly verses 34 and 35, includes both a direct command, a necessary inference, as well as the idea of an example that Jesus sets forth. Taken in concert with everything else he has said up until this point, now late in his life, it is clear that he has used all those different components to teach. And so what you have here in this particular case study is Jesus using CNI to teach and in doing so authorize how we teach love. It is not an option for us to love one another. We don't get to pick and choose. Uh, someone once said that, uh, and I thought it was kind of creative, that this is not trail mix religion or cafeteria style religion wherein you get to pick and choose what you like. You know, the trail mix, they have the healthy stuff, and then they've got the, the chocolate, right? And so you go for the chocolate and leave the, the more so-called healthy stuff. Well, you can't do that because everything is necessary in the trail mix to effectively say, I partook of the trail mix. Cafeteria-style religion is the idea of saying, you go through a buffet line and you have 20 items from which to pick. I want to pick my five favorite. You cannot do that. You've got to get everything out of the Bible and realize the totality of getting it all for your health. And so patterns are important historically and in a practical way, which leads us then to this third observation. And that is we do need to say something about the existence of the local church and the pattern. I appreciate Eric starting us out on the book of Ephesians this morning. And he talked about and asked the very simple question that has a profound answer. What's the purpose of the church? And there's a lot of different ways of, of saying what the purpose of a local church is or what it involves. And certainly the church and the existence of the New Testament 
church in this century is tied to the authoritative pattern of the New Testament itself. So what are we authorized to do? Are we authorized to come together and have a comedy night? Well, all of us, I think, would agree, no, that's not what the church is. There may be some comic relief in some of our preaching from time to time, but that's not the purpose. That's not the intent. Are we to come together tonight so that we have a big buffet physical meal? Well, that's not our purpose either. Uh, there are a lot of things that are not our purposes for which we have zero authority. And so we say, we don't have the authority to do that. We're not going to do that. But we do come together for a purpose, and we do have particular purposes. Let me suggest to you two or three things here about that. First and foremost is the idea of what the church's work is. And I'm not going to go back and read verses 11, 12, and 13 that Brother Eric will get into. But I will tell you that I thought immediately about the passage where Paul says to Timothy, and he says, the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. That is the most important thing that the church does. And I find it frustrating, and I don't, I don't want to get on the soapbox too much, but I will just a little bit. I find it very frustrating in a religious world where people say, well, what can your church do for me? What can it do for my family? And inherently, it seems in 90% of the people asking that question, the intended response, or the, I'm sorry, the, the desired response is, well, we can offer child care, we can offer financial assistance, we can offer food assistance, we can do all those things of a physical nature. And certainly, as Brother Eric pointed out in the Bible class this morning, there are aspects of the local church that for our members that we help each other physically, financially, and otherwise. But the first and foremost goal of this church and of any church that wants to be pleasing and, Revelation 2 and 3, not have its candlestick removed, is to glorify God and to build up the brethren and to do the things that are spiritually authorized in God's word. That's the work of the church. Similarly, we have the worship. Everything that we do in this worship has to be authorized, has to have some sort of a biblical basis for doing that. And let me suggest to you, thirdly, the idea of the church's organization, that we are to be organized like every church in the New Testament as optimally as possible with elders and deacons and members, elders, servants, and saints, as is outlined in Philippians chapter 1. And let me also suggest to you that the idea of joining a church is the same way that we would have joined the church some 2,000 years ago. Go back and read Acts chapter 2, the entirety, all 40-some verses, and you'll see where the Lord added to the church those who were being saved. It is true that we add, and maybe even sometimes in discipline, subtract those who are faithful among the midst of this congregation. Those who come and move here are those who are identified with this particular group. But when it comes to how do I become a member of the Lord's church, how do I become a member of Christ's church, it is only because of a person's obedience and baptism for the forgiveness of his or her sins. Well, we've spent enough time on those things, and certainly more can be spent on that. But let me just close with a fourth and a final component, and that is something that we'll probably develop a little bit later, Lord willing, in the year. And that is there are dangers without a pattern. And we have already really kind of made this point as a sub-point in the previous three. Satan would come along, and if he were here tonight and say, you guys are just being too strict, you're being too wholesome, 
you're being too worrisome and you're being too cautious or careful and would say, you can worship God and follow God in whatever way you want. Now, if Satan can get you to give up on God completely, he wins there. But someone once said, and it was frighteningly true, that hell is not just a place where individuals who say, I don't believe in God will be. But it's people who believe in God who fail to do what the Father's will is, as David pointed out in his sermon this morning. Sitting in pews like this, in buildings similar to this, on days like this, in communities like this, are people that will be lost because they are not doing what the Father's will is about. We cannot do whatever we want. We don't sit down as a group of 170 or 180 or 200 or however many we've got and sit in a service and say, how should we structure the church? What should we preach about? What should we do when we come together? That's not up for debate. We just do what the Bible has to say. Traditions of God are good, but traditions of men are not good. Actually, I have a little book that some of you may have in your libraries called Traditions of God versus the Traditions of Men. It's a little book, maybe 80 pages or so. And it's actually a healthy little resource to go through uh, various denominations and compares those practices with what the Bible has to say and gives you a quick reference to why we need to be careful about doing A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and on down the list of the alphabet. When we equate our way of doing things to God's command, that's wrong. In fact, in Matthew chapter 15, we see that. They took the commands of men and they elevated them to the commands of God. And Jesus says, in vain they are worshiping me. Is it possible? Here's a second easy slow pitch softball. Is it possible for us to worship and to feel really good about our worship as human beings of God and be wrong in that worship? And the answer is yes. And that's frightening to think about. And there are a lot of well-intentioned people, including some of our family, physical family, uh, including some of our neighbors and our co-workers who are engaged in worship where they, I feel like I've done what's right, but I've not done it according to God's will and to the Father's glorification as we've seen outlined. When we cannot find book, chapter, and verse for something we teach, it's got to be wrong. Now, there's more fine-tuning to that that needs to be developed and more studies on authority, and I get that because there are expediencies and there's generic and specific authority that needs to be further delineated. But simply put, we need to be able to go and say, this is what God wants from us as individuals and as the Lord's church in order to be faithful to him. Patterns, finally, are by their very nature restrictive. There are restrictive rules in math. Math was one of my three favorite subjects. Social studies, math. Some of you caught that, some of you didn't. I do like math. I like numbers. I've told you that before. But there are rules about math that you cannot disagree with. Now, I suppose in, in, the, in the finer points of higher math, which is beyond the scope of my understanding, but 2 plus 2 is always, young people, 4. Always will be. If you take two apples, and you take two apples, and you put them in the same bowl, you've got how many apples? 4. Always will be. Until the day that we die. 
The two plus two will always be four. And anyone that comes and says, well, I like to change that to five because I like five. It's a, it's a neat number. You can't do that. There are restrictions and authority in rules of math. Many of us enjoy watching sports or participating in sports, and there are restrictive rules. There are blueprints. There are patterns. There are things. You cannot go outside of that line. If you put your foot on that line when you're in bounds, you are out of bounds. If you shoot from beyond the, in high school, the 19-9 mark, you're going to get three points. And the other coach can't say, well, I think it should be worth two today. You cannot do that. There are rules, and we all agree to that. We sign that contract, so to speak. And there are restrictive rules in Christianity. There is a right and a wrong. And there is a literal black and white and red, as we sometimes say, when it comes to the things that God wants us to do. Jesus, in effect, as we close here, said, the easy way leads to destruction in Matthew chapter 7. And it's that which is absent of a pattern, absent of a blueprint. But the hard way or the more difficult way is with a pattern. Yes, if you could write your own rules for the way that your work environment does things or your academic pursuits pursue or in athletics, anything goes. And the same is true for the church. But anything that goes isn't right. We've got to follow God's pattern. And that's true when it comes to how we go about being saved. And as we always do on an occasion like this, we recognize the importance of following God's pattern for how we live today and how we always live. What pattern do we follow as a church? What pattern do we follow as our families? And what pattern are you following individually? There's a blueprint. There's an answer for that. That's found in God's word as to how a person can be saved. And that's by believing in Jesus Christ, knowing that he's the Christ. You may not have all the answers, but I do believe in Jesus the Christ. I believe that I need to change my life. And I'm willing to confess that I'm going to believe in Jesus and change my life going forward and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. That's something that we would encourage you to do yet tonight. Maybe we've said something tonight that has sparked an interest or perhaps has bothered you. We would welcome the opportunity and we would consider you to be uh, mean-spirited by bringing that to our attention to say, I, I want to know more about that. I'm confused. We would welcome the opportunity to study with you. If you are a child of God, living in error, as we've even prayed about tonight, and we can pray to help you get closer to God, for him to bring you home, all things are indeed already. If we can help, let us know while we stand, while we sing.